0: In order to find your purpose, a couple of things need to happen. You need to be clear about your values and you want to follow through on your curiosity. So yeah, go work your job, pay your bills. And on top of that, if there's anything that makes you curious, go and explore that. It doesn't have to be some massive leap of faith just be like a little hop of faith you know i get it the leap of faith is scary but just one little action one little thing and if you can do that it's going to lead you away from your comfort zone and into your growth zone because that's where your path actually is
1: hey guys how you doing hope you're having a good week so far my name is dr rangan chatterjee and this is my podcast feel better live more Do you think that you could live out of a single backpack? Not for a few weeks or months, but as a semi-permanent lifestyle choice? Well, five years ago, today's guest gave up his luxury apartment, its contents, his cars, and all his possessions, apart from those that fit into his trusty backpack. Light Watkins has been practicing daily meditation for 20 years and teaching it for 15 He's a mindfulness expert and the best-selling author of four books. His mission in life is to help you discover yours. Now, if you are a longtime listener, you may recall that Light has been a guest on my podcast on two previous occasions. Episode 23, which was a masterclass on meditation, and more recently on episode 195. The occasion for his third appearance is the publication of his latest book, Travel Light, Spiritual Minimalism to Live a More Fulfilled Life. Now, from the title, you may think that this book is a guide to decluttering. And in some ways, it is. But Light is not necessarily talking about us getting rid of our material possessions. He's trying to help us clear away our inner clutter, the mental baggage that weighs us down, so that we can better see the path to fulfillment and happiness. Now Light believes that we should all be following our hearts more and our heads less and this involves knowing our values, tuning into our curiosity and then taking small leaps of faith towards our purpose. He also explains why a daily practice of stillness and contemplation is so important and shares practical advice that will help you make friends with your thoughts and turn your mind into your ally. He also explains how meditation works to dissolve stress and feed our intuition. It really is a fantastic conversation that takes us to some really deep and meaningful places. We discuss whether time can ever really be wasted, Light talks us through his own minimalist fitness regime, and you'll find out why he thinks meditation is like a Rubik's Cube, as well as why he sometimes takes his showers fully clothed. Above all, Light's minimalist philosophy is about breaking free from the achievements spring happiness approach to life and discovering that happiness really does come from within. You're a meditation teacher. Yes. Right? You have lived out of a backpack yes. for around five years now. And you've written this beautifully concise new book. hmm and I think it would be useful to start off at the, at the top, you know, outlining the central philosophy.
0: Sure. So the book is called Travel Light, uh, pun intended. And the subtitle is Spiritual Minimalism to Live a More Fulfilled Life. So the central message is if you want to live a more fulfilled life, you have to make some space internally right a lot of people they hear that word minimalism and they think of it as as you know the process of getting rid of things externally you know clear out the living room clean up the closets only keep things that bring you joy and there's nothing wrong with that except it doesn't quite lead to that fulfillment that we're ultimately all wanting you know mostly through achievements we're 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 on the achievement to happiness approach to life and so you know, you and I were talking about this before we started recording, how you've achieved certain metrics in your life, you know, best-selling author and, you know, doing well in this area and that area, but it doesn't, after you have your basic needs met and maybe a little bit more, it doesn't really register as a spike in happiness anymore, right? And I think a lot of people are experiencing that where they are getting the promotion, they're exiting their company, they're you know, ending up with the really beautiful partner and it doesn't spike any sort sort of happiness inside. They kind of feel the same that they felt before. And this is an invitation to come back to the source of where that happiness truly resides, which is which is inside. It's internal. It's internal. It's like what Buddha said, there's no way to happiness. Happiness is the way. So cultivate happiness first and then Um, live a more fulfilled life from there. You'll get your internal cues of what to do and how to be in order to to express that fulfillment from you because that's where it's coming from as opposed to looking for it externally.
1: Yeah, I I really, really love it. And as I was reading the book, it strikes me that one of the central messages is about living an intentional life, Mm -hmm. being aware of the choices you're making and why you're making them. And if I look out across society, what I see is a lot of people who are being overly stimulated. They're constantly looking outside of themselves for things, possessions, promotions, validation, whatever it might be to make them feel better. But it's a trap because it doesn't ultimately lead to you feeling better. And often you have to go there and get those things to realize, oh, wait a minute, it doesn't make me feel better. I also see a lot of what I would call low-grade addictions. Mm -hmm. I'm not talking about the kind of alcoholism that may lead you to going to AA or the gambling problem that leads you to Gamblers Anonymous. Of course, those things need addressing. But I'm talking about the low-grade addictions that people have to caffeine, to sugar, to social media, to online pornography, to retail therapy and shopping, whatever it might be. And then I think about you and the fact that you have lived out of a backpack for five years. It's almost the opposite, right? Instead of being addicted to things and possessions, living out of a backpack is kind of the opposite, right?
0: Uh, somewhat, um, yes, here's the thing I'm not immune to any of those things you talked about (laughs) the sugar and the social media and you know we talked about that as well earlier how when you go off of social media those first few days there's some withdrawal symptoms and you don't realize how addicted you are until you stop you intentionally stop using them so what I've been what I've been intentional about doing in my life is I'll go off sugar for 30 days and just to show myself that I can exist, you know, by minimizing that. And then I'll go off caffeine for 30 days, and then I'll go off social media, you know, on occasion. And so when we can mitigate the the supposed addictions in our life as a lifestyle. Like this is just a part of my lifestyle. It doesn't have to be some extreme thing. I don't have to hit rock bottom. It's just something that I intentionally abstain from or minimize on a fairly Uh, occasional basis, then I can kind of see, okay, this relationship could potentially get a little bit uh, dangerous for me on on occasion. And so just by being more intentional about, about that and about what I can do about that, that's what this sort of lifestyle is about. Like the backpack thing, I'm basing myself right now in Mexico City. I've been there for two and a half years. If you walked into the place where I'm normally staying, which is an Airbnb, you would have no idea that somebody who just lives out of a backpack, you know, operates from there. It just looks like a regular old apartment, you know, it's got a bunch of stuff in it. Um, But the question is, do I need to be in that place in order to find some sense of centering, grounding, fulfillment? And I've shown myself that no, that's not the source of the thing that I've been looking for, nor is the sugar, nor is the caffeine, nor is the social media, but I can still indulge just like anyone else can. This is really interesting for me. As I
1: was thinking about you turning up in the studio, and I was thinking about, what do I wanna talk to Light about this time? For me, I was thinking about you, and I saw you when you came into my house with your backpack on, And I was thinking, wow, all his possessions are in that backpack. So you have had to be very, very intentional about the choices you have made. What's going to get allowed in? What's not? You told me in London, you've just bought a new coat, Mm -hmm. I think. And I said to you, when you bought that coat, did something have to leave? And you said, yeah, if I'm going to bring that in, something's got to go. So to me, as I reflect on that, I think light for the last five years, has had to be very, very intentional about his life. And so it's interesting for me to hear that despite being so intentional, you can also fall prey to a lot of the addictions mm-hmm. that many of us fall prey to. And that's really interesting for me.
0: Yeah. And I think you know part of it is just being honest with yourself about the fact this is an addiction. This is something that could, this is a slippery slope, you know, could, could get really bad very, very quickly. And just that, and I talk about that, discipline is not about willpower, it's about honesty. That's what it's about. Can you be honest with yourself enough to put stop gaps in place? And when you put those stop gaps in place, you may find yourself being able to, to navigate those addictions a little bit more successfully or a little bit less difficult, you know, with a little bit less difficulty than if you are telling yourself with good intention, yeah, I can stop anytime I want. Yeah, you know, it's not a problem. Yeah, I'm going to wake up at six o'clock in the morning and work on my passion project and, and still, you know, watch Netflix and sleep in and go partying on the weekend. No, that's not, you have no track record of, you know, being able to do the things that you've said you wanted to do. So you have to get honest with yourself about that. And maybe you have to, you know, Hold yourself accountable in some way. Maybe you have to spend a bunch of money on a training or a coach mm. so that you give yourself what what I call in the book the freedom of choicelessness. And that's what that backpack represents for me. It's choicelessness. If I want to buy something new, I have to get rid of something old. There's no I can't carry it all around with me. So um, so that gives me a little editor in my mind because I I don't have as much discipline as people would think with Taking on new things. So, but when you have to carry everything around with you, then you have to make those choices. So, I've painted myself into this corner to make yeah. the choice. I mean, there's so much
1: there. I, I love that idea that discipline is not about willpower, it's about honesty. Yeah. And I think everything in this new book, and frankly, if I think about your previous books as well, it's about intentionality. And what do you get if you're being intentional? You get honesty, right? You have to be honest with yourself. Actually, that coffee that one needs to get going every morning is an addiction for many people. Maybe not for everyone, but for many of us. And we can tell ourselves stories that, oh, well, I don't operate well without coffee. And actually, if you look at the literature, I think it's pretty clear that actually And I'm using caffeine as an example here because I'm currently in the process of resetting my own relationship with caffeine. So it's front of mind for me at the moment. But if you need this external substance every single day in order to just operate at your normal, I think we need to ask ourselves some questions. Like, (laughs) you know, is this a choice or is it, you know, a bit of an addiction? And it's okay I'm not saying people should not drink caffeine. I I, I enjoy caffeine. I have done for many years. But I'm currently resetting my relationship with it because I do feel I was becoming a little bit too dependent on it. And one of my favorite studies was from Bristol, I think it was 2010, where they, University of Bristol, where they compared caffeine drinkers and and people who don't drink caffeine. And essentially what they found was that. Is caffeine really a performance enhancer? It can in certain situations, but generally for most of us, if we regularly consume caffeine, all it does is bring us up to the level that non caffeine drinkers <laughs> are at every single day. Mm-hmm. Right? That's all it does. It's a dependency. And why? I, I'm so fascinated like, by your backpack because to <laughs> me, I would have thought that. Having to really be that intentional about what you're having in your life would make you intentional about every other aspect of your life. In fact, what are what would you say the crossover skill is that you've learned from living out of a backpack? How, how does, how do the skills you've learned through that process help you navigate other parts of your life?
0: Mm. Well, I think the backpack really is is an extension of something else, right? Okay. Like people say, like, when did you become a, a, a minimalist or a spiritual minimalist or whatever you want to call it? And what they're expecting me to answer is, oh, on May 31st, which was the day I gave up my two bedroom flat in Venice, California, which was beautiful, 10 minutes walking from the beach, uh, two cars, Vespa, you know, all the art and furniture and all the things. Living the yearbooks. dream. books. Yeah, I had a really nice setup. And I I gave all of that up. I I got rid of everything and I moved into, initially I moved into a carry-on bag, a 22 inch carry-on bag, which I I did found out was the biggest one because I did all this research. Like what's the biggest bag that an average airline will let me put in the overhead compartment because I do not want to have to check luggage. And you have to wait for an hour to get your luggage at the end of a flight and they may lose it. And I didn't want to lose everything. So I wanted to keep everything with me and have that uh, flexibility if I, if I and, and also you do not have to stand in lines to check into the airline to tr- drop your bag off. Mm. So just to free up that that time. And um, But I wouldn't say that's when I became a, a minimalist. I would say I became a minimalist back in 2003, which was the year that I began taking my meditation practice seriously because it was through the meditation practice. I didn't realize this was happening, but an unintentional side effect of daily meditation is it creates spaciousness inside, Mm -hmm. which means you're getting rid of the internal clutter and the emotional baggage that may keep you feeling stuck in um, a part of your life that may no longer be relevant for your personal growth and evolution. And that's gonna be different for everybody. So, So my... Uh, lifestyle now, the living out of a backpack, et cetera, that's my unique expression of what happens when you have more space internally. What do you want to explore? But someone else's may be, you know, starting a podcast. It may be writing a book. It may be uh, starting a nonprofit. It may be tending to a garden or, you know, that thing that's in the back of your mind that you've always sort of wanted to do but you keep talking yourself out of it because i don't have enough time and uh, there're too many bills i need to take care of such and such and you know we keep the excuses kind of streamlining in this ticker tape in the back of our mind and it, we can it's really difficult to break free of that and and we don't realize that the reason why it's so difficult is because there are some old stories there's some old belief patterns that are deeply entrenched in our consciousness. And it's kind of like, you know, again, living in a, being a hoarder, (laughs) you know, having a bunch of stuff in our place that doesn't allow us to navigate very easily and and really see what's there and appreciate the, the small things. So once we can clear some of that stuff out and we create that space internally, then your version of living from a backpack for five plus years could be, you know, something completely different. And so I I I wanna just present the backpack thing not as, oh, this is what everybody should do, just for the record. That's not what I'm advocating here is to is to physically minimize. But that was really that that idea to do that was really interesting to me. So interesting that I decided to get rid of the things that I felt were, you know, socially more acceptable for the life stage. I was in my mid 40s when I did this. I was single, no kids. Hmm. I wanna have a family. I wanna be in a long-term partnership, or if not marriage, right? But when you're in your 40s and you don't have anything, that's not, socially speaking, that's not the best position to be in. But that was what I was feeling called to do. Was there a pain point? Because sometimes we experience, don't we, a
1: pain point in life that, leaves us with no option, but to make a change. Mm -hmm. You know, if I think back to you in Venice Beach, right? Two cars, you've got the Vespa scooter, you've got a nice place, right? The art deco, whatever, right? To many people that sounds like you are that success, right? Mm -hmm. You're living the dream. So was there a pain point? Was there something there that you thought, this can't be all there is? Like for example, could you go back to that life now, with the lessons you've learned, and could you exist in that life in a very different way now?
0: You know, that's a good question. And look, I've been I've been meditating for twenty years. I've been teaching meditation for fifteen years, and um, what I've learned from that experience is that when you get that internal nudge from your heart and you act upon it within a reasonable amount of time, then you can actually avoid the pain. If you ignore it, then the internal tension will build until it becomes painful and potentially even physically manifests into pain, some sort of internal or Mm. uh, physical pain. And so over the years, I've, I've experimented, I've practiced, I've tried to see what happens when you don't follow it versus when you do follow it. And what I've now come to realize is that there are essentially two paths that we can take there's the path of ignoring those external urges and continuing to do what seems to be more socially acceptable, because following your heart is not socially acceptable that's always gonna take you away from your comfort zone and into your growth zone, which is gonna cause you to challenge some sort of belief or convention or something that people just accept as as normal because that's what your path actually is. And if you can do that, it's going to lead to a greater sense of adventure in your life, which means you're not gonna know how it's gonna turn out, but it is gonna be exciting and it's gonna have a sense of anticipation attached to it. If you ignore it, you put yourself on a more dramatic trajectory where you're still experiencing change and a lot of tension and you end up finding yourself in situations because when you ignore your heart, you're betraying yourself. And when you betray yourself, just like when when someone betrays you in life, you're going to end up in very dramatic situations that you then have to kind of put the pieces back together again. But if you make a habit of ignoring yourself, then you stay in this sort of constant state of betrayal. And I talk about that in the book. You do. And
1: and, and in fact, one of the things I I really love about the book is at the start of each chapter, each of these guiding principles on how to be a spiritual minimalist, there's a quote. mm -hmm. And the one I wrote down this morning really speaks to what you just said. Not following your heart is a form of self-betrayal, which means... Whatever comes after that is on you. Mm-hmm. Now that's pretty brutally honest, <laughs> right? right? But it, it it completely resonated with me. Yeah. Because I think I certainly know many times in my life I didn't follow my heart. I went with my head, what I thought was the right thing to do. And you regret it, you resent it, and it comes out in some way. Yeah. Right. And as you were talking about. People not following with their heart voice and try to ignore it, and and that it's a type of betrayal. One of the ways I see this showing up in people, and I've seen this in so many patients over the years, is when they're in a job yeah. that they can't stand. Yeah, or certainly from the circles I grew up in, they're ending up in a job where it's what their parents wanted and it's what society wanted. It's a job that has some security, has some prestige. You know, it's the right job for others. But the problem is is you start doing that, you can end up in your 40s suddenly wondering, where's your life gone? Why are you stuck doing this job that everyone else thinks is great? Yet you're having to numb your pain with two bottles of wine every Friday and Saturday nights. That's Mm -hmm. a downstream consequence of the fact that you weren't following your heart voice. Now, but I also want to acknowledge, and I'd love you to speak to this. Some people will say, yeah, but, you know, I've got bills to pay, mm-hmm. right? I need to earn money to feed my family, to pay the mortgage, and times are getting pretty tough for a lot of people. So how does following your heart voice fit for people who are saying, sounds wonderful,
0: <laughs> but I've got real life to deal with? Mm-hmm. I wanna just go back and put a bow on the last thing you sure. were asking about, which is the pain point. So there's a couple of different qualities of pain. There's the pain of resisting what your heart is nudging you to do, right? Which could result in me hating my job, crying, going to work and coming home from work and feeling like I have to go and cope by you know, drinking a bunch of alcohol or whatever kind of uh, escapism that I'm I'm indulging in. And then there's the pain of going to do the thing that my heart is nudging me to do, but then having to deal with other people's opinions, harsh opinions, people saying things like you're not being responsible, people saying things like you're not being a good father or a good, you know, uh, whatever, provider, because you're now spending time doing something that doesn't seem to be related to producing income or to providing or to nurturing or to taking care of someone or something else. And that can be a very difficult thing to come up against, you know, if you're a thoughtful, mindful, caring person. But the opportunity there is again, to trust. You have to trust in this thing that you're feeling inside. And really the only way to do that, to develop that level of trust is to have some sort of consistent exposure to, um, that heart voice that I talk about in the book. Because the heart voice is very maternal itself. It's very nurturing for you individually. And it's kind of like on the airplane when they say, put the oxygen mask on yourself. And we've all heard that thousands mm-hmm. and thousands of times. And the reason why they have to keep repeating it is because our human tendency is to not do that. So we have to hear it over and over and over and over until it starts to become more and more subconscious mm-hmm. and, and we can start to to prioritize ourselves with the intent to help other people. It's not about just doing this thing because I'm you know, just in this mood. It's like, I'm doing everything that I do because I want to be of service to other people. And that's mm-hmm. really where you start to find your, quote, purpose is when you're engaged in service-based actions, okay? Now, the mistake that we make is that, oh, this has to have something to do with my job. And the reality is that you can still work as a secretary, a virtual assistant, a doctor, an engineer, You know, a, a toll booth operator. You can have these kinds of jobs and you can still be living in your purpose. And I use a story in this book about Rosa Parks, who was seen as the mother of the American civil rights movement. She was the black woman who stayed on her bus seat when the white bus driver tried to get her off in 1955. And that became the catalyst for initiating the modern civil mm-hmm. rights movement with Martin Luther King and all of those historical figures that we now look back and go oh my god these people were so brave well Rosa Parks was a seamstress you know she mm-hmm. wasn't she wasn't an entertainer she wasn't a poet she wasn't some you know artist she was a seamstress she was coming home from work and the demand was placed on her to get up out of her bus seat so a white man can sit down in it and she just refused she was tired of giving in and people then think okay well she was an old lady that's why she she was still seated. Rosa Parks was 42 years old. You know, mm-hmm. she was 8 years younger than me right now. And I was just doing deadlifts in the gym the, the other day. There's nothing tired about about being in your 40s if you've been taking care of yourself. But she was just tired of giving in. And that's because she had a set of values that she was um that she was committed to. And so in the book I talk about, you know, in order to find your your purpose, a couple of things need to happen. You need to be clear about your values, and you want to follow through on your curiosity—the things that just make you naturally curious. So yeah, go work your job, pay your bills, be responsible, and on top of that, if there are anything, if there is anything that makes you curious, go and explore that. It doesn't have to be some massive leap of faith. Just be mm-hmm. like a little hop of faith. You know, I get it—the leap of faith is scary, but just one little action one little thing just give a compliment if 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 you're with in line with someone and and you genuinely like the way they dressed maybe you compliment them about that or if you are on social media and you see you keep seeing the same you, you keep focusing on the same types of posts mm-hmm. about you know style or something like that or decor maybe you you start intentionally posting about that and writing a little caption about the core and your thoughts about it based on your own unique perspective. And you just never know where these things are gonna lead to, right? So when we look back after we've had a little bit of recognized success in any area of life, it all started with me following my curiosity on something. And when you look back after having some uh very dramatic thing happened in your life, some negative thing happened in your life. There was a moment where you ignored your internal guidance. You ignored your heart, right? If you're being honest with yourself, yeah, something told you don't don't get into this business deal with this person. Something told you don't go into this room or if you're in this room with these weird negative people, leave, but you stayed in it because you were afraid of what people were gonna think about you and then the snowball effect occurred yeah. so we're getting all the cues internally we just have to get better at listening to them
1: for sure and you know you make it very clear in the book that a daily practice of stillness is
0: essential yeah foundational
1: yeah and i would i, I would completely agree with that based on my own experience personally and with many patients, like i I just don't think you can truly be healthy or happy unless you are able to spend time by yourself. Now, many people like struggle with this. Mm-hmm. They can't sit with themselves. they can't meditate and it's really interesting. you may I maybe never shared this with you, but I have had so many messages since our very first episode maybe four years ago, when you came on to talk about Bliss More, your, I think, your, was that your first or second book? Second book. Yeah. Your second book. So many people credit that episode as inspiring them to actually meditate. I think there was something about the way you delivered your message, the way you made it quite easy for people. I think, I think it was really quite special. So Broad, big picture here. Why do so many people struggle with stillness? Just taking a quick break to give a shout out to a brand new sponsor of my podcast, Hunter and Gather. Now, with the modern diet being a leading cause of soaring chronic illness rates, it's more important than ever to take ownership of what we are putting into our bodies. So I'm delighted to be partnering with Hunter & Gather, a fantastic brand that I love, that we have used in my house on a regular basis for a number of years. Now, Hunter & Gather make living healthier through real foods, enjoyable, accessible, and understandable. Every product they make is free from refined sugar, seed oils, gluten, and grains, and they have won numerous Great Taste Awards and have tens of thousands of five-star reviews. Now, I personally love their avocado oil, their wonderful olive oil mayonnaise, and their MCT oil. They also stock a really popular collagen powder, organic ghee, and many more fantastic products. Now, for listeners of my show, Hunter & Gather is offering a range of exclusive bundles with up to 45% off, All you have to do is go to hunterandgatherfoods.com forward slash live more to check out all the details. That's hunterandgatherfoods.com forward slash live more. AG1 are also sponsoring today's show. Now, in the UK and North America, summer is definitely over. And as the weather becomes colder, the nights become darker, more and more people are coming down with seasonal infections. Now, a lot of people don't realise that nutrition is really important for the health of our immune system. And of course, in an ideal world, everyone would get all of their nutrition from real whole foods. But I know from over two decades of seeing patients that a lot of us struggle to do that despite our best intentions. This is why I am a fan of good quality whole food supplements like AG1. AG1 is a foundational nutrition supplement that delivers comprehensive nutrients to support whole body health. It's a science-driven formulation of 75 vitamins, minerals, probiotics, and whole food source nutrients. And the best thing is that all of this goodness comes in one convenient daily serving that makes it really easy to integrate as part of your daily routine. AG1 has been in my own life for over five years now, and I genuinely think it is one of the best whole food supplements out there. It can help support energy and focus, gut health and digestion, and of course, it also helps support a healthy immune system. So if you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. For listeners of my show, you can get a free one-year supply of vitamin D, which is a crucial ingredient for your immune system and you get five free AG1 travel packs with your first order. All you have to do is go to drinkag1.com forward slash live more. That's drinkag1.com forward slash
0: live more. They don't struggle with stillness. They struggle with the thing that's stopping them from being able to be still, which is the stress. When you when you let the stress just run wild in your body because you don't have a reliable outlet for it, then it's gonna make practices like stillness seem 100 times more difficult. And that's that's something that you've written about before. And um, I think it's an under-appreciated um, aspect of living life is that you know when the stress doesn't have any way to get out of the body it's going to eventually manifest itself mentally, emotionally, and physically, and you know people we we're very intentional about building wealth in our society, you know increasing capital, making money. there's certain steps like if someone were to say um, you know it's not possible to be wealthy you'd be you would be laughed out of any room of where people who are serious were in. But if someone says it's not possible to be happy, there'd be a debate would ensue. Yeah, well, you know, maybe it's not, or maybe it is, or who knows, or you know, there's not a lot of clarity around this. But I think what we underappreciate is that yes, you can be happier in the sense that you can be more fulfilled if you're intentional about doing the things that will decrease the debt and the debt of happiness is stress. Look at happiness as income, look at stress as debt. If you have more debt than you have income, then you're going to feel bankrupt in terms of your own happiness and inner fulfillment. Mm-hmm. But if you're intentional about increasing the income from the inside out, then you can create a state where you're wealthy with fulfillment. You're wealthy in happiness. You're able to pass around, pass that, that wealth down generationally to your kids because they are Emulating the behaviors and the lifestyle patterns that you are mm. displaying to them. So when what meditation does, and all the the only thing it really does is it puts you in a position to reduce the stress. Once the stress reduces, then the fulfillment increases, right? You're not having to go outside and find the fulfillment on a tree somewhere or in mm. in, you know, for someone to give it to you. It's already inside of you. Once you get rid of the stress, though. Then that's where you'll you'll feel more fulfilled as a byproduct. So is one way you could interpret that
1: saying: if you can reduce the stress in your life, mm-hmm. you're going to find it easier to meditate. Because I think many of us think meditation is a way of reducing stress. Yes. So how do those two things fit alongside each other?
0: Yeah, it's interesting because if you've not been meditating for decades and you start meditating, then it can feel quite intense initially when the stress starts getting dissolved because that was what causes what they call the monkey mind. Mm. That monkey mind- You don't like that
1: term, do you? No. Because people say it all the time and you do write about it. So why don't you like the term monkey mind?
0: It's a misrepresentation of what's actually happening. People associate the monkey mind feeling as a reason why they can't meditate. And it's kind of like- it's kind of like the analogy that I like to use is with swimming, you know, like if you can't swim, it's not because you have monkey arms and monkey legs. It's because you haven't learned the mechanics of swimming. Once you learn the mechanics of swimming, then the water will support you. If you fight the water, it will drown you. And so what people do when they first start meditating, because there's not a lot of good uh, meditation instruction out here. It's a lot of the blind leading the blind to be frank. Um, but a lot of people are fighting their mind. They're fighting the natural tendencies of the mind. And I talk about uh, the minimalist approach to meditation, which is doing less, doing least, and ultimately doing nothing, just practicing pure being, sitting comfortably, having a passive attitude. And that will position your mind to become more settled. And as your mind becomes settled and your body becomes rested as a byproduct of your settled mind, all the body needs is to achieve some sense of rest and then it automatically begins to rehabilitate itself, which means it begins to dissolve stress. And it's the stress dissolution that will cause your mind to then have a spike in activity. And that spike in activity is what people then you know, fight against, thinking, oh, this shouldn't be happening. But actually, that is a byproduct of stress release. So the way you know the stress is actually being released is that through consistent practice where you're going deep in some meditations and then having some some spiked activity in other meditations, you're finding yourself becoming increasingly more and more adaptable to change outside of meditation. You're sleeping better at night. You're getting sick less often. You're able to be more compassionate, generous, and empathetic out in your real world, out in the field, as I call it. And so that becomes an ongoing process that can last for years. The stress continues to go down. The adaptation energy continues to go up and you find that you're able to drop into more and more of a flow state just in everyday regular life. And that doesn't mean that everything is going your way. It means that whatever life is presenting to you, you can navigate it more successfully without having an overreaction.
1: Yeah. Do you think meditation is for everyone?
0: in the sense that rest can be beneficial for everyone, yes. I think that meditation is for everyone. I don't think everyone necessarily needs to meditate. Like for instance, with me, I didn't start meditating until I was 30. Not, I didn't start taking it seriously until I was 30. Mm-hmm. Now, does that mean I was miserable up until I was 30? I had a pretty good life. you know. Fortunately, I've never struggled with mental health and I've always considered myself to be a relatively happy person. And never really a stressed out person, right? So I would theorize that if I had never introduced or been introduced to meditation, that I probably still would have had a pretty good life. I was sleeping well and, you know, the whole mm-hmm. thing. But what I never anticipated and what actually still surprises me to this day as a result of my daily meditation practice is the, the strength to which my intuition has grown over these years and how just. Cl- the clarity around those internal the internal guidance and that's something i never experienced before i started meditating there would be some whispers you know and some maybe little pokes here and there and that's why they call it the still small voice you know mm-hmm. that in spiritual circles the still small voice of inner guidance and you have to get quiet in order to hear it and you know if there's any other movement or noise or concerns mm-hmm. maybe it's 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 it'll go away But once you've been cultivating that through a daily practice, it starts to become less of a still small voice. The volume gets turned up and it becomes a loud, annoying voice. And that's where you ultimately want it to be because then it becomes harder and harder to ignore. And I find that to be very useful when I can't ignore it anymore.
1: Yeah. It's interesting. When I started to engage in a daily stillness practice uh, of which meditation forms a part of it, I've I've had a, I would say a love-hate relationship with meditation over the years. Mm -hmm. I think like many people, I struggled initially. I knew with my rational brain, the benefits, I'd read the science, I'd say, oh, it does this, it helps with your perception of pain, reduces anxiety, improves sleep, helps you feel more calm, right? So you you tell yourself that and then you want to meditate because Mm -hmm. you know of all the benefits. Yet I think maybe 10, 15 years ago, whenever it was, I fell into the trap of thinking that Oh, I should be able to just suddenly sit there, do nothing, and feel bliss and feel this calm, quiet yeah. mind. And I I really feel I overused willpower. I'd go through streaks of a few weeks of doing it, then I'd, you know, then I'd go through weeks and streaks of not doing it. And something has shifted in the past few years where by now I don't do it every day. I have a stillness practice every day. I don't always meditate. But when I do, and I did this morning, it's something that I luxuriate in. I really enjoy it. Mm. It's not a struggle anymore. It's, it's just, a, frankly, a wonderful experience. Some mornings I wake up and I really want to meditate. I don't want to read. I don't want to pick up my phone. I, I want the feeling of calm to continue. I want to take advantage of that early morning time and sit with myself and my thoughts and my mind. And it's interesting. Can we say that meditation helps to reduce stress? Well, I think we can, but at the same time, I feel that making other changes in my life, getting better at saying no to things, yeah. um, reducing workload where I could, all kinds of different things help me to meditate better. So I kind of feel it's not either or, you know. Med it's funny, you say that the benefits of meditation are often seen outside the meditation. What's happening in the other 23 hours of the day, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. How are you showing up? How calm are you? How present are you with your wife and with your children at work? That's really interesting. But I think for me, at least it works both ways, whereby if in our non-meditation time, we are making better decisions, we it, it also helps us meditate better.
0: Yes. It's a a reinforcement loop. Yeah. And I think you're right. I think the telltale sign of progress in a practice like a meditation or stillness practice is in the choices you're making because there's basically two kinds of choices that people are making. Either you're doing things to be happy or you're doing things because you're happy, right? You're taking this job because you think that whatever it's gonna give to you is gonna make you happier. And usually that's not the case, or you have cultivated some sense of peace or happiness or fulfillment inside. And then you take this job because this would be a great outlet for the fulfillment that I have or the creativity Mm. that I have or the peace that I have. And so that determines why you do most of the things that you do. I'm gonna date this person because I'm happy, not to get happy. If I'm looking for someone to make me happy, that's a completely different person. Mm -hmm. But if I'm looking for someone because I'm happy and I want to share that happiness with this person, then my priorities have changed. And so that becomes a cumulative effect, which then becomes self-reinforcing, right? Mm -hmm. If I'm constantly choosing things to make me happy, then... I'm going to not have a whole lot of time to do things like meditate and work out and eat well because I'm putting myself on the dramatic trajectory now. So I'm having to put out fires all the time mm-hmm. and spending all this time arguing with this person cause they're not making me happy. Like I thought they should have been making me happy. And, yeah. <laughs> you know, so it's true. You don't have time for things like that. And it seems irrelevant because there's so much else happening that you have to deal with. Versus doing things because you're happy, it actually refunds you back time because you have a lot less neediness in your life. Yes, things are still not going to go your way, but it's kind of okay because that wasn't the source of your happiness anyway. Yeah,
1: You know what you're talking about might be put in the bucket of mental well-being by many people. But for me, it goes far beyond that. And as a medical doctor, having spent years seeing patients with a whole variety of different symptoms and physical complaints often, it really is very, very clear to me that one of the best ways you can improve your physical health is to cultivate that inner spaciousness that you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Because if you can get to know yourself better, your tendencies, your triggers, how you make decisions, like you're, if you if you if you can really sort that inner world out, and I think your book is a great kind of guidebook on how people can do that. I think physical health actually becomes relatively straightforward, or easier, or as you said before, less difficult. Mm-hmm. But I think so many people like want to meditate. And they struggle. You know you know this, you're a meditation teacher. I was at a festival last week, a a UK festival called CarFest. And there was a few panels there and people were asking questions. And again, there was a, I'd say a middle-aged lady. She was a mother. She said, I can make all kinds of other changes. I really want to meditate, but I just don't seem to be able to do it. I can't make it stick. So you've covered a little bit there, but for that person who's at home right now, Who's watching this or listening and goes, yeah, you know what? Like I really want to meditate. I can never make it stick. And I know you've got a little guide in the mm-hmm. in the new book. Can you talk them through what you would say? You know, how how can they go about that?
0: Yeah, I would just um, you know, so in the book, the the basic instructions are, and this is pretty huge for I think most people is you don't have to look like you're meditating. You know That's one of the reasons why it can be difficult is because you're sitting on a cushion or you're crossing your legs or you're trying to have your back as straight as possible. And that's not actually helpful when it comes to having a more relaxed experience in the practice and it's not necessary. Uh, Dr. Herbert Benson proved that back in the 60s or 70s that you can still elicit the relaxation response while sitting comfortably. And in fact, he said, you need to sit comfortably if you wanna get the full effect of the relaxation mm. response, which is that deep and profound, the excited physical state that one can experience from a daily meditation practice. So sitting on your couch, sitting against your headboard on your bed, sitting in your favorite reading chair, like you can meditate in those positions and you can just look like you're sitting there relaxing. You can look like you're watching television and yeah. that could be your meditation position. So right off the bat, that will increase the the uh, delightfulness of the practice by, you know, 60%, then you only have to deal with your mind. And that's, again, that's one of the other big obstacles is people see their mind as a erratic monkey swinging around. But when you understand that the nature of the mind is to think and to look for better possibilities, the reason why it seems like the volume in your mind gets turned up when you close your eyes is because you don't realize how much of a distraction... To your mind, that just visual stimulation is so. Your mind is still thinking at the same rate as it was before you close your eyes, except now you just don't have anything to look at except the back of your eyelids, and it's not sad, trying to sabotage your meditation. It's just functioning opt or it's functioning normally in the way that it always functions. And so, one thing you can do to again make it more enjoyable is to just shift your your attitude. Away from this is bad to this is just normal. this is just what it is. There's nothing wrong with my mind. There's nothing uh, trying to sabotage my meditation practice. And when you start to have the attitude that the mind is your ally in your meditation as opposed to the enemy coming in to sabotage your meditation, that will also increase the enjoyableness of the of the experience by another, you know, 30%. Yeah. And then from there, you just, you know, you can you can notice your breathing or you can just adopt, you know, a passive attitude with whatever thoughts are occurring during the practice. I mean, there's a whole, you know, like we said, there's a whole thing in the book where I walk you through it, but just sit for 10 minutes or just sit for five minutes. Just start with five minutes, just sitting mm. like that. And maybe you breathe deep um, 10 times. If you breathe deep 10, to- 10 times, that's one minute goes by. You breathe deep twenty times. That's two minutes. So every ten deep breaths is another minute. Do fifty of them, and that's your meditation. Yeah. And that gives you a little bit of something to do, so you don't feel like you're just sitting there, you know, thinking about dinner. And you get that, you know, you get to to intentionally um, tune into your breath and tune into your body. And maybe some insights come to you during that period or right after that period, and that's great. But if you keep it manageable and and as easy as possible, it's going to, and 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 maybe a little bit less than what you think you're capable of, it's gonna leave you wanting more for the next time. Mm-hmm. And meditation is a consistency game. But the reason why I talk about it is because I think it's one of the key habits that then makes you more prone to be grateful, to go to the gym, to eat better, to be more compassionate, do, to do all the other things that you ultimately already want to do. Yeah, I completely agree
1: you said if someone's sitting there, they might be thinking about what they're going to have for dinner tonight. Mm-hmm. Is that a problem? No, that's, that's, that's normal. So for that person who's taken your advice, they're doing that and they're saying, okay, I don't need to worry about my posture because I was spending all my mental energy thinking about how I'm going to keep my back straight and my head aligned. And you're saying, hey, just chill out, relax, whatever you're comfortable with. That makes complete sense to me. You used a great analogy in another interview I heard you give where, you know, you. I think you said if if you had to watch Netflix whilst keeping in perfect alignment mm-hmm. and sitting with your back straight, you know, how much energy would you be spending on watching the show? It would all be spent trying to manage your body, right? So mm-hmm. I think that's really, really good advice. But for that person who is doing that, they're slumping against their sofa in their comfortable position, they're shutting their eyes but all that's coming up is their to-do list or what they need to cook for dinner that evening. What would you advise them to do in that moment?
0: Uh, Just see it as a a normal part of the experience to even celebrate it if they can. Like, this is great. I'm sitting here, I'm in my body, I'm thinking all these amazing thoughts. And, you know, it's like what Captain Jack Sparrow said in Pirates of the Caribbean. The problem is not the problem. The problem is your attitude about the problem. (laughs) That's the only problem you're having right now. Not what you're thinking about, but what you think about what you think about. And so the opportunity is to keep tweaking your attitude back towards nonchalance, or if you can, towards celebration of the thinking mind. And what's ironic is when you can go the other way with it, you'll find that your mind actually becomes more settled. It's the whole adage, you know, what you resist persists. Mm-hmm. So if you resist it in any way, it's just gonna persist. It's gonna get louder, it's gonna become more bothersome. But if you go the other way with it and accept it, it actually will, your mind will settle beyond that, that whatever that thought is. Yeah. Would you say that
1: it's common for people to initially, let's say we make it super simple for people, five minutes a day, mm-hmm. right? And your favorite spot in, in your house or apartment where you feel really comfortable, you sit there. I know in the book you say ideally first thing in the morning. Mm-hmm. I completely agree with that. If I don't do it first thing in the morning, it never happens. <laughs> so <laughs> I think it's a, it's, it's a good time to do it. And would you say that the natural trajectory for most people is initially lots of thoughts are coming up, to-do lists, dinner, mm-hmm. shopping lists. Mm-hmm. But if you commit to that five-minute daily practice and don't try and resist the thoughts, but I guess make friends with them and just observe them. Mm -hmm. Does the mind naturally then start to quiet after a few days and a few weeks? Is is that what tends to happen? No,
0: what happens is, what happens is, you know, when you go swimming, right? When you go swimming and the water is, is cooler than your body temperature, it's always gonna feel a little bit cold when you first get in it. Okay. But then after a while, it starts to warm up, okay? Like that with the mind, you're gonna have to go through those to-do list thoughts initially. But if you don't have a problem with that, then eventually the experience will start to warm up and you'll find yourself becoming more settled mm-hmm. in, uh, throughout the process. But if you're kind of apprehensive, about getting all the way in and just immersing yourself in the experience, then it's going to stay colder longer. The water is going to stay colder longer. Those thoughts are going to be more prominent throughout. So you have to be okay with the experience, with that initial sort of shock of, oh, my to-do list and dinner and da-da-da-da, and really not have a problem with it. And that's how you begin to... um, Settle your mind beyond that. But that's going to be the beginning of every single meditation you do. Did that happen to you this morning when you meditated? <laughs> <laughs> no. I mean, yeah, it did. It did happen. But um look, 20 years in, all the meditations pretty much feel the feel the same. But yeah. initially, when you you know, when I, I work with people, I was just working with a group in London last week, and that's what we spend most of the time talking about is how to go beyond the to-do list thoughts and the You know, I'm standing there ideating or remembering things from my past. And that's a very common trajectory within the meditation itself. Yeah. A couple of things
1: there. Um, It reminded me of anything uncomfortable. Let's say, you know, taking a cold shower or cold immersion, which is becoming a huge wellness trend all over the world now. Mm -hmm. If you resist the cold, Mm -hmm. let's say you're in a warm shower and you think, I'm going to finish up with 30 seconds of cold, which is something I often do. If you resist the cold and tense your body- It makes it worse. It makes it worse. You feel cold the entire time. But if you can mm-hmm. just lean into it and soften everything, mm-hmm. before you know it, you you don't feel the cold anymore. Yeah. Like within seconds, it's the same kind of principle, isn't it? You just, yeah. I guess, lean into it.
0: Yeah. Although yeah. I have to say meditation, meditating is more enjoyable than taking a cold <laughs> <laughs> you, you haven't been seduced by the cold immersion trend <laughs> no, yet? No, no, I no, not, no, But I can appreciate it. You can appreciate, can appreciate that. it, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But you know what's so funny about that? I think a lot of people, because we live in this sort of type A, like I need to feel like something intense is happening in order for me to be benefiting from it. Um, I think a lot of people default to things like that as that's my meditation. You know, you hear someone like a Tony Robbins, who I love, I love his work. And he says, you know, first thing I do every morning, is I jump into this cold plunge and my mind tries to stop me every time, but I'm teaching my mind that I'm the master and it's the servant and blah, blah, blah. and and I, But he says openly, I don't meditate because I can't stop my thoughts. <laughs> Even someone like David Goggins doesn't meditate because his mind is, and he'll go out and run, you know, a thousand miles. <laughs> yeah. You know, and get after it. But it's so funny how meditation is like in this whole other category when it comes to that Sort of type A approach as this, this the 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 kryptonite, in, in to a lot of these kinds of people, and and to your earlier point, when you can master that meditation, you may find that you need less and less of these other more extreme things yeah. in order to feel like you're having you're doing something, because you're 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 not trying to get to it from the outside anymore. You know, yeah. it goes beyond. It's actually un, beyond the men, men, mental strength that people are ultimately striving for because that mental strength is, can also be a reflection of your spiritual strength. Yeah. When you have strong spiritual values, then it's easier to do the right thing. It's easier to go above and beyond. It's easier to go the extra mile. You don't have to go out and run a thousand miles in order to condition yourself to do that, you know, in the worst case scenario situations, Yeah, just like Rosa Parks. I think you've you've found something really important, this idea that
1: I think it's more of a Western model than an Eastern model, this idea that we we have to feel as though we've done something for it to count. Mm-hmm. You know, a workout has to be intense. We've got to be out of breath. There's plenty of evidence that low heart rate movements, movement that feels easy, that you do lots of, has incredible benefits like for Like walking. Our, like walking, and we'll get to that. Mm-hmm. Like our short-term health, our longevity, our stress response, all kinds of things. And I feel, Not that cold immersion isn't transformative for some people, but I think they all play into this idea that we need to have a significant change in our state. We have to feel something different for it to count as us doing something. And what you're proposing, I think, in this conversation and in your book, is something a lot calmer, something... I think, a lot more long-lasting, something that doesn't need as much energy and willpower. And that's why I really resonate with the book because I kind of feel this form of minimalism is the kind of minimalism I've sort of stumbled across Mm -hmm. when trying to feel happier, more content. Do you agree with some of that?
0: Yeah, and I think what you're referring to is the whole do less and accomplish more approach to life in, in general. You know, I don't think there's anything wrong with any of those any no, of those protocols at all. And I love, in, you know, participating here and there and every now and again. And I've been a long-term gym goer and, you know, I walk a lot and, um, you know, I, I, I think there's a time and place for all of those things. Um, but I think the ultimate question we want to ask, if, if we're considering, you know, going all in on any of those things it, at the expense of a meditation practice is, how does it translate? Cuz at the end of the day, nobody gives a crap what your Wim Hof experience or what your cold shower experience was if you're not showing up in the relationship in a better way, a better version of you. You know, no one cares if you're not being more compassionate with them, if you're not being more com- patient yeah. with them, if you're not if you don't have better bedside manners as a doctor. And so, I think that finding that connection is a lot more difficult with extreme activity and me being Mm. a better version of me in all realms of life. Whereas when you look at your meditation practice, even if you don't wanna be a better person, if you meditate every day, you're gonna be a better person. Yeah. You're gonna be more patient. You're gonna be more altruistic. You're gonna be more generous. You're gonna be more kind-hearted. You're gonna be more intuitive. You're gonna probably find yourself in the right place at the right time more often than not. Yeah. And that place may be in the gym. It may be in the Ayurvedic doctor's office. It may be, because meditation is a truth serum.
1: Just taking a quick break to give a shout out to the mental wellness app Calm, one of the sponsors of today's show. In today's fast paced world, taking care of your mental health is more important than ever. It affects every single aspect of our lives and impacts how we think, feel, and behave. And now finding time to nourish our mental well being is easier than ever with Calm. Calm is a mental wellness app that can help you stress less, sleep more, and live a happier, healthier life. Calm has guided meditations, sleep stories, relaxing music tracks, and daily movement sessions that are all designed to give you the tools to improve the way that you feel. Over 100 million people around the world use Calm to take care of their minds. And for listeners of my show, Calm is offering an exclusive offer of 40% off a Calm, premium subscription at calm.com forward slash live more and new content is added every week all you have to do is go to calm.com forward slash live more for 40% off unlimited access to calm's entire library that's calm.com forward slash live more carol bike are also sponsoring today's show For four months now, I have had a carol bike in my house and I absolutely love it. I love the fact that it's easily adjustable to not only my height, but also the height of my wife and my kids who also love it. It's also really quiet when riding. So I can be up early in the morning getting a workout in and my family can be asleep upstairs without getting disturbed. Now, I personally use my carol bike mostly for long, low intensity rides. But many people I know love the fact that carol bikes make it easy to achieve remarkable health and fitness benefits in a fraction of the time, which is important because many of us feel that we don't have enough time. Now, carol bike was developed with leading exercise researchers to deliver the shortest, most effective workouts for any age and fitness level. Their signature reduced exertion HIIT workouts creates the most potent training stimulus with just two 20-second sprints. I really do enjoy these short, intense workouts as well. Now, studies have shown that Carol Bike helps you achieve a 12% increase in cardio fitness, lowers the risk of type 2 diabetes by 62%, and reduces blood pressure by 5% in as little as eight weeks. They offer a 100-day risk-free trial. You can return your bike, no questions asked, within 100 days of delivery. And if you live in the mainland US, Canada, or UK, you can get your bike delivered for free. For listeners of my podcast, Carol Bike are giving you £100 or $100 off a new bike using the promo codes LIVEMORE. All you have to do is go to carolbike.com forward slash livemore, that's C-A-R-O-L-B-I-K-E.com forward slash livemore and use the codes
0: Live more. Meditation's a truth serum. It's very hard to lie to yourself if you've been under the influence of meditation for, you know, months or years on end. It's very hard to continue down a path that you know is unsustainable without without giving yourself permission to do something about it even though it's hard to have that conversation it's hard to confront that yeah. that thing you know but you know you and and that's that's what i've also said before is that people think meditation makes you gullible and that's why they don't do it especially this really type a alpha type of people but meditation actually makes you bold it's stress that makes you gullible it's stress that makes you stay in the job cuz you know you're going to you're going to cope on the weekends mm-hmm. you're going to go let loose and you know, you're living for that vacation. You're gonna be able to stay in this toxic relationship because it looks better on paper. Mm-hmm. And you know, meditation will say, I don't care how it looks on paper. Your heart is gonna tell you you need to make a change. It doesn't mean you have to break up with somebody, but maybe the way you relate to this person needs to be different. It needs to be more in alignment. You need mm-hmm. to have stronger boundaries. Yeah. So um, so that's that's why I think meditation is a key habit over all the other stuff.
1: You said that sometimes in meditation we get these key insights about our life. In your experience, do you think journaling alongside meditation can be helpful? Let's say straight after the practice where you've had these insights, is it useful in your view to then maybe journal the things that you learned, the things that you've realized about your life?
0: Sure, however however it expresses itself. I've never really been a consistent journaler, but every time I have journaled, it's been very helpful. Yeah. So, um, But I don't think journaling alone it's going to take you as far without some sort of inner stillness practice. And I want to make that distinction as well that you know there are a lot of different forms of meditation. When I'm referring to meditation I'm primarily referring to a daily seated eyes closed practice because that's the one that can put you into that deep and profound relaxation response. Yeah. There's not been a lot of evidence showing that walking meditations or you know, other kinds of eating meditation, other kinds of externally focused meditations can elicit this, the relaxation response in the same way. Yeah. Do you know one of the most
1: transformative things for me in my meditation practice as I reflect on it now? Just really tuning into some of the things you just said. I remember a few years ago, like, I think, like many people, I. I needed the conditions to be right
0: mm-hmm.
1: for me to meditate. The room needed to be clean. It all had to be just right, the right lights, whatever it might be, the kids asleep. And this is years ago now. I can remember times when I was you know, meditating and when my kids were younger, they'd get up and they'd come into the living room where I was meditating. And I'd like to think I didn't show it, You know, I was trying to be magnanimous about it, but I think internally (laughs) I was a bit frustrated that my meditation was being interrupted. Mm. And it's like what you just said, it's not the problem that's the problem, it's the attitude to the problem. One day, I don't know why exactly, I thought, Rangan, why is this a problem? This is great, the kids are excited, they're coming in to join you in the morning. Like, this is good. So literally I changed my attitudes, genuinely from the inside out, And I would smile and invite them to come and sit with me and join me. And I generally wouldn't feel frustrated. Mm -hmm. And although it sounds quite a small thing, I think it was really significant because it reshaped how I viewed it. I don't need perfect conditions. I don't need the children to be in another room being quiet. If If I think I need those things, I'm setting myself up for a lot of disappointments in this practice. So I lent into it my attitude to that, what could be called a distraction, which I wouldn't call that distraction anymore. I think it's an opportunity. Mm. It's really elevated my practice. Is that something you hear off? I mean, I don't know what, as a meditation teacher, what would you say to that?
0: No, that's great. That's exactly what I'm, I'm essentially teaching people is, you know, the way you gauge success in meditation is based primarily on your attitude. It's not about... How deep you go or how settled you become, mm. it's how you feel about whatever you're experiencing. Because then the meditation, again, it has utility, it has purpose. You're using it to be a simulation for life. Because if you do that every day, you know, 10 minutes here, 15 minutes there, five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, five minutes, 10 minutes, eventually that attitude will start to carry over into your life outside of meditation where it really counts. Because when you think about suffering, you know, and the listener can run this thought experiment, think about the last time you suffered. I guarantee it was because of one of two things either something didn't happen in the way you thought it should have happened, or it didn't happen in the time you felt it should have happened. That's it. And you had a problem with that. Inherently, was it good, bad? You know, we could debate both sides, but it was the expectation that was the most problematic. Mm-hmm. And so when you can simulate coming back to this place of, you know what, this is okay. This is not the end of the world or you know adjusting my, edit- my, my attitude back towards this is fine, this is good, this is okay. Then eventually that's going to become more of a default state when things aren't going the way you think they should be going. Mm-hmm. Now, this is, this is not a call to not care about your life or about the things that's happening in your life, it's it's a call to not be so rigidly attached to the way it's all playing out Mm -hmm. or to the timing that it's all happening in. And just trusting that, look, if I do the best that I can do and I keep trying all these other things and it's not really happening in the way that I want it to happen, then probably things are happening as they should and it's probably positioning me in some Advantageous way that maybe I can't see right now. Mm -hmm. So let me just keep the camera rolling and let's see how the whole thing plays out as I continue to do my best. Mm -hmm. Right? I'm not waiting for something to happen. I'm treating life, I'm treating the journey as the destination. And, you know, it's just like what they say in the Bhagavad Gita when they say, you have the right to the work itself, but not to the fruit of the work. And I think that's where we find the most joy is when we can find ourselves okay with the process, the process, the various processes, right? The relating, the I mean, having a child, having a child be born, that's a very joyous occasion, but most of your experience with that child is gonna be the process of parenting the child, mm. and eventually the child leaving and you know being out in the world on on their own. And there's really no moments that are gonna be able to equate to the entirety of that process and the day-to-day choices that you have to make yeah. and continuing to show up. And it's really a reflection of you as the parent, like how, how, my, how I'm showing up is really, is what's teaching this this little mini version of me. And that's also happening in work and it's also happening in relationships and it's also happening with your health and you know all these little things yeah. that could either throw me off and ruin my day or week or, When they don't go my way, I can say, you know what, this is okay too. And I'm just going to keep moving and, and see it for what it is, which is just a part of the process. And, and then it keeps you in that present moment awareness state, which is where you could argue the the happiness is being, is continuing to be cultivated.
1: Yeah. You have a principle in the book, there are no throwaway moments, Mm -hmm. which I really really like. I think it speaks to what you've just been talking about there a little bit. It speaks to what you said earlier about this idea that you keep following your curiosity and you'll end up somewhere in 5 10 years, but it wasn't linear. Mm-hmm. Like you look back and all those moments played a role, even the job you didn't get played a role, right? So I want to talk about that because I really like it. It's my version of that is uh, that I'm thinking about and writing about at the moment is that it's impossible to waste time Mm -hmm. because it's your attitude to the time that determines whether it's a waste or not. If you look at time or every experience as a learning opportunity, either to get curious about yourself or the other person or the world around you, well, is it truly possible to waste time? So I'd love your perspective on that, but also what do you mean when you say there are no throwaway moments? So I do
0: think that it is possible to misuse time. I do agree at the same time that it's it's not, it's impossible to waste time. Like, I don't think you can waste time because you can learn from every experience, mm. but you can also not optimize your time by not being present to whatever's happening around you. So- The word optimize is interesting to me because it's the,
1: it's the word of the moment in wellness, yeah. right? Optimize, optimize, optimize every aspect of your life. Mm-hmm. Are we sometimes taking it too far? Like are we trying to optimize every single aspect of our life?
0: When you optimize for presence, it doesn't you're not walking around going, oh, I'm present now. I feel present, you know? Optimizing for presence is you fully immersed in whatever it is that you're doing. Yeah. So if you're washing dishes, you're optimizing for presence if you're fully immersed in that experience. If you're with your family or your kids or your partner or yourself and you're fully there then that's how you're optimizing. But the way you optimize for it is you don't wait until the moment to optimize for it. <laughs> you have to you have to cultivate that beforehand. And that's where, again, it, everything ties back to that daily practice, that stillness mm-hmm. practice, because that is your, your simulator for becoming more present in your life outside of that. Because otherwise you can have all the time in the world, but you may be constantly thinking about what didn't happen before, or worried about what could happen next. And as my spiritual teacher once said years and years ago, he said, the seeds of the future are always planted in the present. So if you want to know what's going to happen tomorrow, then it would serve you best to be completely present in whatever's happening right now. And then you can tune into those cues about what's coming And as you do that, you can make better choices. And those better choices, again, they're not conscious choices a lot of times. They're just choices that just feel like the right thing to do. But when they play out, you see, oh, wow, something told me to dot, 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 and I did it. And it didn't make a lot of sense to me at the time. And it really didn't make a lot of sense to other people. But I ended up you know, in this really interesting situation. I was walking through New York one night and got this internal cue to go and buy a Rubik's cube from a books from a Barnes and Noble bookstore in union square. And I didn't make any sense at the time because I was early in my meditation teaching career. I was trying to figure out how to get more people in to teach meditation. And, um, and it wasn't necessarily because I wanted to make more money, although that would have been a happy side effect of teaching more meditation, but really it's because I was just passionate about teaching meditation. And I, I knew the profound effect it had on me. And I wanted it to have that same effect on other people. But I got this call to get this Rubik's Cube and I went with it because that's what I made myself uh, conditioned to do is whenever I get those internal urgings, just go with it. Try not to, try not to question it too much. And I went and got the last Rubik's Cube from that store and I came home and I started trying to figure out how to, how to solve it. And I went online and I looked up, you know, how do you solve a Rubik's Cube? I never knew how to solve one. And apparently, I, I thought you had to be a smart person or a genius in order to solve a Rubik's Cube, but actually it's just like, it's a sequence you learn. You learn a series of turns and twists. And if you keep repeating the same series again and again, eventually the cube will solve itself. So I taught myself that sequence over the next few days. And finally, I knew how to solve a Rubik's Cube. And through the process, I realized that there was a correlation between how a Rubik's Cube solves itself and how meditation can help to bring the body back into balance. Mm-hmm. Starting with a foundation of rest, then after rest comes back online, your digestive system, your immune system, your reproduction system, and all the other long-term survival functions come back online. And like that, you solve the Rubik's Cube solves itself in rows. You know, one row could be considered the foundational row and then, which is the rest. And then the other rows represent the other functions in the body. So this was a very interesting correlation to me. No one else would even really care, Mm. but it just was fascinating to me. And I thought there's gotta be somebody else out there who would be interested in this correlation. So I made a, a video. This is back in 2010 or something. So I made a video and I decided to post it on the new website, YouTube. <laughs> and I had to learn how to do all this. I had to go on iMovie, I had to learn how to put like little captions and all the things, put music up there. And I, have, I had a point and shoot camera. I didn't even have a like a video. Cam- there were no smartphones at the time. Yeah. I didn't have a video camcorder. So anyway, I put it all together. That was a bit of work, but I was so happy throughout the entire process because I was thinking about how many people this would eventually help. And I uploaded to YouTube, and it became a viral video. People who were interested in meditation saw this thing, and guess what happened? More people came to learn how to meditate as a result <laughs> of it. And that's kind of how it goes, you know. When we talk about listening to the heart and um, and being present to whatever mm-hmm. internal urges or nudgings we're getting, and just kind of trusting that, hey, the thing that I i want in my mind or in my ego is also connected to what's happening in my heart except my heart has a much more interesting imaginative and adventurous way of getting there and it potentially is even more sustainable and you're going to learn some stuff along the way you may learn some stuff emotionally you may also learn some stuff just informationally mm-hmm. on how to you know how to get there and then how to sustain while you're there and bit, and also the thing that it takes to get there is not going to necessarily be the thing that grows whatever your purpose happens to be. So you you have to continue to stay present. Yeah. You can't just be present one time and expect that everything is going to happen from that. It has to become a lifestyle, not an isolated act. Can you still solve a Rubik's cube today? <laughs> I've forgotten the sequence, but I'm sure if I put a you know spent half a day. Remembering it again, I probably could do that. I haven't, I haven't. So if I get one out now, which this I've is, got. No, I don't have one here. That this was is back in the old days when <laughs> I had an apartment, so I, I had. There's no room for a Rubik's cube in my but, backpack. Hell, that's now. a good excuse. That's a good. That's a good reason. <laughs> do
1: Do you think to adopt this sort of approach that um, there's no throwaway moments that you actually have to believe in something greater that there's a powerful force guiding us, that the universe Mm -hmm. is working for us, not against us. And then if you do, what would you say to a skeptic who says, like, that's a load of rubbish, right? Things happen. Yeah. Um, Of course, there are throwaway moments. Things happen that I don't want to happen. And I just learn from them
0: and move on. I, I would say that, first of all, it can't really be both. So it's gotta be either one or the other. Either everything is happening randomly or everything is happening on some sort of divine purpose, right? Now, I also admit there's no way to know one way or the other, you know? No one can definitively say if everything is happening on purpose, no one can say if everything is happening randomly until maybe after you die, and then of course you're not here. So um, so yeah, you don't know, no one knows. So what I have decided for myself is that whatever your belief is, that's a religion. That belief that maybe it's all rubbish, you know, people may think oh I'm not pr- religion this rubbish no, you're practicing a religion when you when you believe that everything is happening randomly because you're acting then on that and mm. you're probably worshiping other people's other people, other figures who say the same things yeah. and maybe you know the person who has the biggest platform is the guru of that religion and if you believe everything is happening for you, that also is a type of religion, right A thing that you believe, a thing that you act upon those beliefs, et cetera. And so we're all practicing some sort of religion, what, what could be identified as a religion, mm-hmm. something with shared values, shared beliefs, shared ideology, something that um, we stand firm in, et cetera. And I invite everybody to adopt the religion or the belief system or the I- ideology that empowers you the most. Exactly. Whichever one empowers you the most, since no one can say definitively which was which and which one is real and which one is not, we all admit that, but which one empowers you the most? If you believe that the things that are happening to you are also happening for you, are you more empowered in the choices that you're making on a Mm day-to-day basis versus adopting the belief that it's all just random and who cares and, you know, Everything is just kind of like you could get taken out at any point and nothing really matters. Does that make you genuinely feel empowered over a long enough Mm -hmm. period of time? Yeah. And if it does, great, try that out. And maybe adopting that belief will help you come back to the other belief (laughs) and you'll... You'll be even more committed to that. So you really can't go wrong. You can't go wrong. But at least make a conscious choice of which one you're going to adopt.
1: Yeah, if you follow your curiosity and see everything as an experiment, mm-hmm. you're going to learn throughout it. Yeah. you know, and, and I very much share the same perspective. Can we prove that it's all divinely been written? No, but that's where I come to in my life. How do I prefer to live? Well, I prefer to live... Believing that it is and that everything is happening to me for a reason Mm -hmm. because I've lived the other way and I prefer this way (laughs) because you then become, as you say, empowered. You're not a victim to life anymore. You're not a victim to external events. You've got a degree of control. If something happens that you didn't want to happen, like my natural default now, because I've been practicing it for so many years is, okay, what's the learning opportunity here? What is the upside of this thing not happening? If I am going to talk to a friend uh, later today who is pretty disappointed that they didn't get a job that they've been going for, and we've arranged to talk later. And again, one of the things I I hope I'll be saying to him, depending on how our conversation goes, is, you know, what's the upside here? Mm-hmm. I get it, you're disappointed, you really wanted that job. Um Can you see any upsides here? Because I think even just shifting the question to that, it just subtly starts to change things, doesn't it?
0: Yeah. And it's like what Steve Jobs says in that famous commencement speech. You can't connect the dots looking forward. And I think that's really what people who believe everything is happening arbitrarily have are trying to popularize this, you know, nothing is connected. But when you look back, and this is why I love biographies, you know, you, yeah, you, you read someone's, the entirety of someone's life story, and you can see how pretty much everything that they went through ended up coming into play at some point in their life. Yeah, And if we look back at our biography, at our history, you know, if we've lived long enough, we could see a lot of the things that we've, we've been through have shaped our perspective in a way that has informed our best decisions that we've made. Now there' are probably a lot of decisions, again, where you weren't following your internal guidance, you were ignoring mm-hmm. it, you're trying to do the, the whole you know achieve your way to happiness thing, which ended up pretty badly, you know, <laughs> put you in some really interesting situations. But in those rare moments where something from your past informed a decision that you made that was a little bit more altruistic in nature, where you Mm -hmm. were trying to be helpful, you were being kind, you were um, being of service in some way, you ended up in a situation that was maybe, you know, better than you imagined for yourself and maybe made you feel differently than you thought you would feel Mm -hmm. from leaving the more higher paying job and taking another position that was a little bit less paid, but it was more fulfilling to your heart. And because you had gone through a similar experience, to the one that people now you're now helping are experiencing and you have some unique thing that they can relate to. And that's, there's a feeling that you can't quantify on paper that you're gonna have if you're in that kind of situation helping people with something you've personally struggled with.
1: And I guess even if you've followed your head voice instead of your heart voice, I would still subscribe to the view that there are no throwaway moments because if you can be honest and intentional Right, which is, I think, what your entire approach is really about. You can then assess that. I've done this recently in my own life about uh, a certain job I took a few years ago, and instead of, you know, uh, cursing myself for it because I didn't really enjoy it, I resented it whilst I was in it. It's now, oh, you can learn from that, which means I'm not going to make that mistake. The next time and that actually a very similar scenario has presented itself and this time i said no because i said yes to that and learnt ah this is what happens when you follow your head voice and not your heart voice Mm -hmm. right so Mm -hmm. even the situations that you don't think you want to happen are very very powerful Mm -hmm. if you can be honest with yourself and again bringing it back to meditation or stillness if you have that time and space i completely agree with you like that actually that's when you start to be able to, I think, honestly assess your life. And as you say, you can't hide from yourself, Mm -hmm. right? That voice is there. You know, you can distract yourself with whatever you want, Instagram, social media, sugar, booze, whatever it might be. But in those quiet moments, that voice is there. Yeah. You know, and I think suppressing it and not paying attention to it is toxic for mental health and physical health in the long term, for sure. You like biographies. Mm -hmm. I've also read that one of your favorite books is Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. Mm -hmm. Why is that one of your favorite books?
0: (laughs) You know, I read that book years and years ago. I haven't even read it recently, but it just, there are some parts of it that really stuck out to me. And it was the first time I thought I really um, was presented with this idea that the way you do anything is the way you do everything. Mm. And that's essentially what it's about. It's about how Um, It's a fictionalized story of this guy that drives across country with his son on a motorcycle. And he's teaching his son these philosophical and spiritual lessons about um, how when you maintain a motorcycle, there's no difference in the motorcycle and you. You and the motorcycle are one. And so the care and the attention you give to maintenance of it is a part of the process of being with it. And if if you're sloppy with it, six days out of the week, you can't expect to be perfect with it on the seventh day, Mm -hmm. right? If you, you have to be perfect every, there's this this quote from the book. He says, if you want to paint the perfect picture, all you have to do is make yourself perfect and then paint naturally. (laughs) And I love that. You know, if you want to be, if you want to be fulfilled, all you have to do is cultivate fulfillment and just, Act naturally, like in, in other words, you don't have to try to go out and do things mm. that will lead to fulfillment. Just create that internally, and that's why the first principle in my book is about cultivating inner happiness. And then the second principle is then making your most important decisions from your he- from your heart and not from your head. Now, if you skip the first step, it's a real it's really challenging to make those decisions mm. from your heart because you're not gonna be able to hear it very clearly first of all, but then also the head or the ego is really good at disguising itself as your heart Mm. and making you think that you're listening to your heart when actually you're still listening to your head because the telltale sign is you're too attached to the outcome. With the heart, you're more engaged in the process of the whole thing. The head makes you think about, okay, what's the payoff? Am I gonna be more recognized? Is this gonna help me become more famous? Is this gonna help me get more money? Is this gonna help me do this? It's all about me, 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 me. Can I provide, can I, you know? Whereas the heart is really about, hey, you have this gift and you need to share it with other people. And you're sharing it to help them, right? That's the payoff. The payoff is they get helped by it, not you. You don't need their approval for you to be fulfilled. You're sharing it because you're fulfilled. You're sharing it because you're happy. And then no throwaway moments comes after that. That's principle number three. It's very difficult to treat life as though there are no throwaway moments if you haven't been making heart-based decisions. And if you haven't been mm-hmm. tuning in to those internal nudgings of the heart, it's hard to give what you want to receive, which is principle number four. It's very difficult to follow your curiosity because it's just not as much of a priority, which is principle five. And then finding comfort and discomfort because discomfort is too, it's just too much. And it's, mm-hmm. that's why most people are, they're equating success with comfort. They're striving for more comfort because there's such discomfort internally that they mm. can't cope with. And then seven is, is freedom of choicelessness. And then you hear people like me walking around, living out of a backpack, oh, I can't, there's no way I can do that. right? But again, I'm not asking you to do that. <laughs> I'm mm-hmm. saying paint yourself into a corner. In some way, post a daily blog, that's your version of it. Put yourself on the hook. You know, it's kind of like what Seth Godin says, be on the hook. It's actually better to be on the hook than it is to keep taking yourself off the hook from whatever your commitment is, your personal contribution to the tribe is. And that could be, you know, the podcast. It could be going off social media for two months. Mm-hmm. You know, that's a corner you painted yourself in because every everyone around you is on it. Mm-hmm. You obviously, want to be on it, but you've told yourself, I'm committed to not being on it for a certain period of time. What's the payoff? Maybe I'll get an insight. Maybe I'll be more present with my family and my kids. Maybe um, that will lead to something else, some other idea, book idea, perhaps, Mm. that I can then share with the world, right? Why did you ask me just before we started,
1: did you really go off social media all summer? Was that... I'm really interested in that question. I haven't been able to shake it since then. Is it because you think it's unusual these days? Is it because, I don't know, I'm I'm genuinely interested as to why did you ask? Are you really doing that?
0: I was just curious about your, I've always been curious about it since since I saw you do it. And actually you inspired me to do it once and I went off and took it off the phone and then found myself opening up like the weather app because I was just wanting to, I realized it wasn't even about social media. It was about distractions. (laughs) It was about having something to do. And uh, so, you know, over the years, things like that evolve. And people ask me, do you really live out of a backpack? (laughs) Yeah, do you? (laughs) Well, you know, yes, technically I live out of a backpack, but as I mentioned, I'm still based somewhere. So I've arranged a situation where I have this Airbnb that when I'm on the road, like I am right now, you know, other people are staying in it, but when I come back, there's a place where I can stay. And so I have a little bit of stability. I have a gym membership in Mexico city and I have a group of friends and And a
1: minimalist with a gym membership.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, you know, and I don't know how long this is going to last. And, you know, I think it's okay. And this is another thing I was telling a friend of mine, she was saying how she's getting a divorce. She filed for divorce, you know, after 30, 40 years from her husband and... And I was listening to her and, you know, she was telling me all, he you know, he's a narcissist and this and that and the other. And I said to her at the end, I said, you know, I support everything you're talking about and it's okay if you change your mind,
1: mm-hmm.
0: you know? Cause a lot of times we'll think, oh, I've taken this really hard stance and now I'm kind of locked in, but it doesn't have to be a forever thing, no. you know? You can go with it and maybe your heart voice says, okay, it's time to yeah. go a different direction now and go back into it. And this is, again, this is something that was really profound for me uh, from my sort of spiritual, the exposure to spiritual teachers. One says, there's this practice of Nivar tatwam, which means go where you are not. So when something is, is unknown and you're in a place where it, Things are too things are repeating too much, you know, there's too much comfort. Mm -hmm. Then from a spiritual perspective, it's actually more dangerous to stay in that place of familiarity than it is to keep moving towards some place that's a little bit more Mm -hmm. unknown. In other words, moving towards growth, moving towards some degree of transformation, stretching yourself a little bit. Mm -hmm. And then eventually that place is going to become familiar. Mm -hmm. in which case you may go back to the other place. And so there's this sort of isolation that's happening. And it's not about getting to one place permanently, but continuing to stay on the move with your own growth and and allowing the way you feel about these things to sort of inform what your next move is. Mm -hmm. So in her example, it's not about necessarily getting back to this particular guy, but maybe if there's another situation and she's thinking, oh, I've already done that, or you know, um, I'm so comfortable now on my own, maybe the next step in her own personal growth and evolution is to find some other version of that that's a little bit more suitable to where she is or mm-hmm. where, she's, where she's grown. You yeah. know? And that's how we do in the gym. You, you wanna keep stretching yourself. You wanna mm-hmm. keep introducing new levels of resistance in order to keep encouraging that growth. And the same is true for spirituality.
1: Let's talk about values. You mentioned it earlier on in the conversation when we were talking about purpose and curiosity. Mm-hmm. And another thing I really like about the book is these practical exercises that are dotted throughout. One of them around values was the funeral exercise. Yes. So I wonder if you could talk us through that because I do think values is something pit pe- is something people hear a lot about. Mm-hmm. And then they often go, yeah, but I, I don't know where to start. Like, I don't know what my values are. <laughs> and I think this funeral exercise really kind of speaks to
0: that. Yeah, and that's one of the things I really try to do with this book and my body of work in general is to try to find accessible ways for people to mm. understand or at least take the first step mm. in the direction of defining their values or tuning into their heart and all of these. So with the values exercise, I ask people to imagine their funeral, and people coming up to you know, the podium to say something about them. Like, And I think we can all think about what do we want people to say about us,
1: mm-hmm.
0: about the life that we lived. Now, if you've been to funerals, and I've been to several, the more touching testimonials are the ones where people talk about, oh, this person was very patient with me this person was very generous, was very kind, you know. And so usually it has nothing to do with how much money you made or, you know, how much material possessions you had and things like that. It's really about who you were as a person. You were honest, you were a person of integrity, you were someone who gave mm-hmm. people second chances, right? So when you kind of lock in on your list of of, of values that you would like to be your legacy and you start grouping them together in categories. And maybe this value is all about family. I'm a, you know, I I value my family connections and then maybe I value um, my ability to inspire people. That's one of my own personal values. And so once you have maybe three or four, you consolidate them, so three or four or five values, that can become your new filter or your new editor through which you make your choices. Either the choices align with the values or they don't align Mm. with those values, right? So if you're thinking about three different types of job opportunities and one of them pays a lot of money but it compromises two or three of your values (laughs) to take that job, then from your heart's perspective, that's not even an option. Mm -hmm. Doesn't matter how much they're paying you. If another opportunity is paying less money but it checks all the boxes value-wise That's your job. And so that's what what I mean by that freedom of choicelessness. Mm -hmm. And when you start to operate like that and make decisions based on that, again, on the surface, it's gonna look like, oh, you're depriving the people who depend on you of that additional money. You could be paying for college. I get the whole conversation. But here's what I want people to consider. When you take an opportunity that checks more of those boxes that align with your values, you're going to be more engaged, you're gonna be more in present, present and you're gonna be more inspired in that work mm. than you will be in the other work. In which case, you have no idea what other opportunities are gonna come about from mm. being involved in that versus the negativity that can result from putting yourself in a situation where you feel compromised on a regular basis that can yeah. lead to all kinds of weird emotional, mental and health challenges that then the people who you claim to love and want to care for are going to have to care for you at yeah. some point. And, oh man, I've seen that
1: so many times, so many times with patients. People, and I do want to acknowledge like you have that it can be really challenging and sometimes people have to make choices that maybe are not They're optimal choices, but they feel that they're the best choice that they can make because of their situation, finances, bills, whatever it might be. But I have seen too many times people who have neglected their relationships with their partner, with their children, to chase more work, a promotion, more money, and told themselves a story that I need this to give them this certain lifestyle, let's say. But it always comes at a cost. There's always a cost. And often it's the denigration of those relationships or the making their kids feel guilty that, you know, I'm working so hard to look after you and give you all these opportunities. Well, your kids probably didn't even ask you for that, Mm -hmm. right? It's like, but because of the stress you are bringing onto yourself by following the head voice, not Mm -hmm. the heart voice. Often you then take it out on those people. So yeah, maybe materialistically you're giving them what you think they want, but it's coming at a huge emotional cost. And actually that's another part of the book I really like, this idea of there being no free lunch, that every single thing in
0: life has a cost. Can you speak Mm -hmm. to that a little bit? Yeah, so just in that example of the jobs, let's say one salary is a 100,000 pounds and that's the one that compromises your integrity, Right. And and does not align with your values. And the other salary is, you know, sixty pounds, sixty thousand pounds, and that's the one that checks all the boxes. I would say that the sixty thousand pound job is actually paying more money than the hundred thousand dollar because there's a cost to that neglect and to the tension and the friction that's going to build up over time from taking the higher paying uh, Mm. job on the surface, where you know you could argue that the cost deducted from the salary makes that job only really a 30,000 pound job. And the spiritual paycheck that you get from checking all the boxes with the lower paying job actually makes that one the 120,000 pound paying job. And so that's actually the highest paying job that you have available because you can't discount the cost of the friction that's gonna be created from compromising your integrity if you're a spiritually mature person. If you're not, then as you mentioned earlier maybe you have to have that experience to appreciate mm. the value of your integrity and if you mm-hmm. ask yourself that question what is my integrity actually worth you know is it worth that extra 40,000 pounds over the long term what's the value of my mental health worth you mm-hmm. know if someone said you don't deserve mental health you don't deserve physical health Anyone hearing that would be offended. Of course I do, what are you talking about? I deserve everything, mm. da, da, da da But you, are you acting like that? Are you making choices that demonstrate that you feel genuinely that you deserve to have the best mental and physical health available? Well, if you do, then you can't put yourself in situations that are compromising that very easily. And I'm not saying that you can't work side jobs and do mm. temporary things and you know make ends meet. If that's where you are in your life, where you don't have the luxury of choice, then you do what you have to do, but then you better be using your weekends and your nights, you know, your, your nine to your, your five to nine hours. You need to be utilized with taking those little hops of faith in the direction of whatever it is that lights you up inside. Yeah.
1: And it's also, I think because we don't value, you know, we, there's a monetary value to that job that we can see on the presentation mm-hmm. that's like, if you take this job, we're going to give you this much, but we don't put a value in the same way, many of us at least, certainly when we're maybe, as you would put it, spiritually immature or not as mature as we might be, we don't put a value on what it feels like to be rested at the weekend or take a two-hour hike with our partner and our children feeling totally chilled. Mm-hmm. Like, We're not seeing that on the job description, right? But that's what it's taken away from us some of the time. And I speak with passion about this, having, I think, made some mistakes there in the past. And going back to why do I take this social media break every summer? Many reasons for it. In answer to your question, yes, I do go off. I post my final post and I don't even look at the comments. I delete the app straight away. As soon as it's posted, I press delete on the app and it takes two or three days before the fidgetiness of not checking Instagram goes. And then you don't want to get back on it at the end of it. You really, you lean into this calm and this presence. But for me, it's about, because I have a regular practice of solitude, because I'm aware that my relationships, in particular with my wife and my children, are the most important things in my life. Then whilst my children are young, and whilst they have these six week summer holidays, and because a lot of what I do in my public facing work is online, I have decided that for me and my family, it's a really good practice for me to go off during that time. It doesn't mean I don't have any work to do or anything else, but we purposely stop our podcast for six weeks. We don't release, and I go off social media. And I've got to say, I. Love it. It doesn't mean I don't like being back on Instagram. It doesn't mean I don't love releasing this podcast each week. But it's by knowing my values. Mm -hmm. Basically, what you're talking about is by by making mistakes, realizing that there are no throwaway moments as you write about and learning from them and going, huh, you know what? Whilst the kids are young, I'm lucky enough to be in a position in my life and career where I can do this. Mm-hmm. Some people may not be. Some people might say, "Well, social media is how I run my business, for my work. I can't
0: go off." Okay, fine. No worries. I get that. But for me, it works. How, how has it changed your relationship when you're when you're back on it over the years?
1: It's it's dramatically changed it. Mm-hmm. So I think I don't feel a detox period each year is necessarily a substitute for an ongoing healthy relationship. Mm -hmm. I think you could easily go off for a month each year and then go straight back into Mm -hmm. the same patterns as you were before. I think for me, you realize how much noise that is on social media. You realize how much your thoughts and beliefs are influenced by the content you're consuming. Mm-hmm. So I really feel for me over the summer, I really get to tune in more to what I think, you know, without the influence of what does this influencer think or what does my friend here think? You know, of course, you know, as humans, we are social animals. We we do respond to the world around us, right. but I feel I can tune into myself more. I can hear my heart voice better mm-hmm. when I'm off social media. I find it harder when I'm on it regularly. And so how do I how does that directly work for me? I have someone on my team who posts some of the content on social media. Now I write it and sign it off. But I don't I mean a few posts I do post myself, but a lot of the time it's someone in my team who works as part of the podcast who puts the video out. So I've given myself a bit of distance between myself and actually going on there, which has been incredibly helpful. Now, I'll also acknowledge that not everyone has, you know, a public profile like I do. And so because of that, and there's a lot of noise on social media, a lot of comments, I've just realized that a lot of the time it doesn't help you. Mm -hmm. It doesn't, good or bad. It's not necessarily, I don't think we're wired as humans to have the opinions of thousands of people, good or bad all the time. That's so I realized I'm a better human. I'm a better dad. I'm a better husband when I spend less time on social media. So I've been, I'm much more intentional with my time when I'm back. Did that answer your question? Yeah,
0: yeah. For the most part, yeah. I was just curious. Um, I've been doing this experiment in the last couple of years where, and I, this was actually, I thought about this when, I, when you inspired me to go off completely. And I thought, Instead of this whole pendulum thing, mm. I'm gonna minimize just everything on social media. So I, I was following, I think, like 1,200 mm. people at the time. Now I'm following less than 100 people. Yeah, and I kind of stick to that. So again, freedom. It's like the backpack. It's, a, it's the Instagram version of the backpack. You know, if, if I follow somebody, I gotta unfollow somebody else. Yeah, so
1: but it, that, and that's another thing I think I've done. I, I I've, as I've come back on, I did a big cull. Mm-hmm. And again, it's not personal against anyone who I don't <laughs> no longer follow. It's just being intentional about what you're letting into your mind, mm-hmm. right? And so, yeah, uh, quite similar as well. Yeah. I've learned that actually I don't need to be following everyone. Or sometimes I'm looking at people and think, why am I following this person? I, I pressed follow maybe four years ago because mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. liked to post and mm-hmm. I've not seen one since. So I love that, that, that the similarity between that and a backpack. Um, I, I really did want to talk about Your minimalist approach to exercise, Mm -hmm. because I think exercise and moving more is something so many people struggle with. And yeah, why don't you speak a bit about your approach? Because I think it's fantastic.
0: So during the pandemic, um, obviously, I was a big gym goer, I've been for years, and I would go to the gym. Prior to the pandemic, and stay in there for like an hour, hour fifteen, you know, and do a bunch of exercises, deadlifting, and compound exercises and stuff. And obviously, that all that got shut down during during the initial lockdown periods. And I found myself not really continuing with my exercises, and um, and then eventually I thought, well, okay, let me get honest with myself why am I not exercising? Well, there's nowhere to go. It's too much of a hassle, blah, blah, blah. I need all these different things to be in place. And I thought, okay, well, what's something I can just do right now using what I have? And, um, and I just started this sort of calisthenic program, but one of the things that would stop me was, okay, what am I going to do today? Oh, let me think. Well, I did that yesterday. I don't want to do that the same. And so, eventually, over many weeks, I devised this sort of seven day plan where I would do one body part each day. And I would only do, say, 20 reps of that body part. So, I would do push ups on Mondays. I would do air squats on Tuesdays. I would go find a pull up bar somewhere and do pull ups on Wednesdays. And I was only doing 20 reps. Mm-hmm. So, it would only take me five minutes. And what I found was that it left me wanting more. Mm-hmm. And there was something about the consistency of doing the same thing on that day of the week that I didn't have to when I didn't have to think about it. And I started looking forward to it. And then I started introducing exercise bands into the equation. So to make the push ups to increase the resistance on the push ups and the squatting, wrapping the bands around my shoulders and standing on the bottom part of the bands. Mm. And um and eventually it just became this sort of minimalist um, workout program that I started doing every day. And then I created this online challenge to help, mm-hmm. you know, because people kept asking me about it. And so then it became this sort of 108 day movement challenge where we were all doing the same thing on the same day of the week. And you're building up to 100 reps and you're focusing mainly on quality, quality of movement, full form stretches. Um, and breathing and mm-hmm. making the whole thing sort of a moving meditation. And, uh, and I found that to be very, I was able to kind of trim back down again, uh, just doing that, not doing anything else. And again, I was in my late forties when I started mm-hmm. doing that, I'm 50 now. And I feel like I've, I'm in the best shape of my life. Yeah, <laughs> um, I've back, gotten back in the gym now and I started implementing the same thing, but with weights. So I do one weight exercise per day Five sets of five, and I go to. Or in the last set, I'll go to a failure. But yeah, it's it's like yesterday uh, was. What was yesterday? Was um. What day was yesterday? Yesterday was Monday. Monday, so Monday is push-up day, so yeah. or, or bench press day, and then today is squat day, and yeah. things like that. So, and if I don't have access to a gym, I'll just do the calisthenic version. Yeah,
1: I love it, and that you've you've gone through all the details in the new book. I love it for so many reasons. Number one, it reminds me of what you said earlier in this conversation about meditation. You know, make it easy and stop when you still feel you can do more. Mm-hmm. So you're you're kind of itching to come back. You know, you don't go to max and beyond. It's like, no, right. I could yeah. do more. Mm-hmm. And then you're excited to come back to it. I think that's I think mean, that's really good. And again, speaking to that sort of, I guess, Western v Eastern approach, the Western approach. Is much more about pushing it hard, going to failure, doing as much as you can, leaving nothing out there, right? Whereas the Eastern approach might be, and these are generalizations I know, might be more the approach you're adopting, which is do this amount, you know, leave something in the tank. Don't, you know, kill yourself with fatigue and stress. So you can come back the next day. So I like that aspect of it. He said, sometimes it only took you five minutes to do these reps Mm -hmm. or potentially less sometimes. Again, I've been talking about a five minute kitchen workout for years on the show. I love approaches like that because I think the obstacles people put up in their minds to moving more are very, very fragile once you start to explore them. You know, Mm -hmm. I don't have the right equipment. I don't have the right shorts, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, the gyms too fast? So, okay, cool. All right. Well, we can we can address <laughs> all of those with the approach you just outlined, mm-hmm. right? And I also love the aspect of eliminating choice. And mm-hmm. I know there's a lot about choicelessness and the beauty of that in your book, which we probably don't have time to explore today, but again, big fan of eliminating choice from our lives. And You've just made it super easy. You know, you don't have to procrastinate on Monday and figure out well what workout I'm gonna do today. It's push up day. Yeah. Every day, every Monday.
0: You do push-up. If you're traveling, you know you're gonna do push ups on Monday.
1: Have you done your workout today? I haven't done it today yet. Okay. No. But you will? I will. Yeah. Absolutely. Because it's a commitment you made to yourself. It's air squats, yeah. Uh
0: huh. So later on when I check into my when I get to Dublin and check into the hotel, I'll just do my air squats. I'll even do them in the shower. You know, like it doesn't matter where you do them as long as you do them. And I kind of like doing them in the shower. That's what, that was one of the things that was the catalyst for me writing this book is I was in the shower with all my clothes on doing air squats.
1: (laughs) With all your clothes
0: on. With my clothes on. Explain. (laughs) Because I had started hand washing my clothes as a way of just, you know, being more efficient and cutting down to the, Mm -hmm. the backpack thing. And... And then I thought, you know, I'm, I'm wasting water here. I'm I like taking long showers and I'm I'm using a separate situation to hand wash my clothes in the sink. Why don't I just wash my clothes while I'm taking a shower? And that way I can have the long shower and I'm I'm better utilizing the water in the shower. And so then I thought, why am I even taking my clothes off? I just keep them on <laughs> <laughs> when I get in the shower. <laughs> I
1: love it. It's not as ridiculous as it sounds, and I do like that uh, section in the book on hand washing. And it kind of reminds me of when I was a kid, and like every, every other summer we'd go to India for uh, for six weeks to see our family. And the the alternate summers so those, we'd go around Europe. Mm-hmm. So my dad would drive from the northwest of England, we'd get the ferry into France, and we'd just drive everywhere for three weeks. We didn't actually take that much, and I, I seem to remember I've got this memory when I was reading your book of Mum just cleaning our clothes and like hanging them up in hotel rooms mm-hmm. and just washing them. And I, you know, for the last few years I've realised I do that. I travel light now, mm-hmm. um, you know, no pun intended there with your book, but I do. And this summer when we went to Greece, I hardly took anything because I know I'm not going to wear much in a hot climate, mm-hmm. and then you can pretty much wash everything when you have having a shower. Mm-hmm. And it dries if you're in a hot climate like Greece, it dries in about 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. And it's it's interesting that that whole hand washing piece is probably something that many people did
0: mm-hmm.
1: like 50 years ago. Yep. You know, that was the norm before yep. washing machines. Yep.
0: Yep. Yep. That was exactly how people clean their clothes. Even in places like India, that's still how it happens on a regular basis. And, and, uh, and this,
1: this, this, um, this 108 day program that you, uh-huh. and you, I know you run lots of them. I think it's your email list, is it? Yeah. Um, which is really good. I enjoy getting your emails. Oh, thank you. Yeah, really, really. And you're still doing them daily, right?
0: I am, yeah. How long has that been now? It's been seven plus years now.
1: Seven plus years? Yeah. Have you ever missed a day of sending this email? No. Okay.
0: Freedom of choicelessness.
1: <laughs> so you have no choice, like you've made a commitment to yourself yes. that you're sending this email. Correct. So what happens on those days where your plane's delayed, um, <laughs> the Wi-Fi's out, your phone freezes, whatever it might be, and you just think, ah, you know what, just one day, it doesn't matter. You know, I've done the last six years, I've done the last seven, I just
0: missed one day. What goes through your mind? Uh I'll, by any means necessary. So I'll just, you know, it's a priority for me. So I'll, I'll make whatever whatever adjustments I need to make. And, you know, we do this anyway. People may hear that and say, oh, it sounds extreme. You do it for coffee. If you're a coffee drinker, you'll go out of your way to get a cup of coffee. If you're a sugar addict, you'll go out of your way to get sugar. If you're a pothead, you, will go, you'll, you can go to Amish country and find out where to get pot. You know, um, that's mm-hmm. what you, you're, you're dependent upon. So if you do it enough times, it becomes a lifestyle in which case you just accommodate, you, you adjust, you, you make, it's not, a, it's not an intellectual thing anymore. It's really, a, you've embodied it. And so I think about it days in advance. If I have to go somewhere or do something or I'll, I'll decline an invitation if it's gonna be too disruptive, I just won't go. You know,
1: this is really interesting to me because this sounds like a sacred commitment that you've made to yourself. Yeah. Like this speaks to purpose, values, like the heart voice, like making a vow, a commitment to yourself and not breaking it.
0: Well, you know, you asked me earlier, what what, was their pain or something that inspired me to make some of these changes? And it's actually... The opposite, I feel like I have such good fortune in my life as a result of those commitments. And I wouldn't want to spoil my access to the good fortune mm-hmm. by compromising on the thing that's creating the, that good fortune. So I've seen a lot of the correlation between me not getting sick for seven plus years. You know, not saying that that was because I write a daily dose of inspiration mm-hmm. email, but. You know, I found myself again in some pretty fortunate circumstances and and I choose to adopt the belief that because I am as committed to what I consider to be my purpose, which are the things that I use to help other people, and that allows me to have you know the, the resources that I'm you know yeah. have conversations with you. Like I wouldn't be having this conversation yeah. had I not been as committed as I was. And you can't look back and go, which one was the email that was the most important? It was the whole thing. It was the whole body of work and it hasn't stopped. Have you missed or when was the last time you didn't
1: meditate?
0: I haven't meditated this morning yet, but I'm going to meditate on the flight.
1: So (laughs) Okay, so let me ask it a different way. How long have you been
0: meditating for every single day? I can't remember the last time I went a whole day without meditating. If it did happen, it was, you know, probably there was some extreme thing going on. But generally speaking, you've been meditating daily for, for about 20 years. Twenty years. So
1: I think those two things you just said, I think there's something so powerful about them. Writing a daily email for seven plus years, most mm-hmm. people would hear that and go, oh my word, no way could I do that. Yet as you beautifully explained, people go out of their way for other things. Coffee, sugar.
0: But imagine, imagine if, you, if every time you wrote a daily email and sent it out, you got a deposit in your checking account for a thousand pounds. Imagine if that was the case. Everyone would do it every day. You would have no problem doing it. And what I'm presenting with this book and just my, again my body of work in general is that to your spirit, it feels like you're getting a thousand pound deposit every day. So it's not a it's not a hassle, it's not it's not something I have to force myself to do. It's something I want to do because I know mm-hmm. what the payoff feels like. And once you and the same with meditation. I love meditating. It feels like taking a bath, a bubble bath for my mind. So who wouldn't want that? So I'll happily, you know, be a little late to an appointment <laughs> if that allows if that means I have time to meditate because it just feels great and I feel great for the rest of the day. I think when people see it as a chore, they have it in the chore yeah. category, then it's like, wow, well, that takes it's, a lot of discipline. It's the
1: attitude to the activity that dictates a lot of this, right? It's
0: how do you view it? How do you see it? and Or it's the embodiment. It, you know, writing all that generates so much creativity that I can now write write books. I can articulate myself. I'm a better speaker. I'm a better storyteller.
1: For people who do want to sign up to that, what's the what's the link? We'll put it in the show Just notes. Let's go to but,
0: lightwatkins.com. lightwatkins.com. Yeah.
1: The the, the wider point for me, Light, and and I I love about these deposits in your spiritual bank accounts, because I I think, as you say, discipline is honesty, right? A lot of the time we struggle to make changes is because we're not willing to be brutally honest with ourselves. We're not willing to do the work of figuring out, well, what are our values? Mm -hmm. We convince ourselves that we don't have time to not look at our phone for 10 minutes in the morning. I've tried to convince myself of that in the past. And then I realized what a fallacy that was. And one of the wider points to me is that it's this idea that I think a lot about, like, that we are looking to externalities for evidence. What does the research show us? You know, what does this scientific paper say? And these things can have value. But I honestly believe with all my being that the, the very best form of evidence is experience. That commitment you're showing to yourself by not missing a day meditating, by sending out your daily email for seven plus years. I feel that there's something so powerful because it shows you, it shows your inner world, it shows your mind, it shows your soul, that you show up for yourself. Mm doesn't matter what's going on, you still show up for yourself. And I think that is so, so powerful. It's one of the reasons I love this minimalist approach to exercise that you write about, because if you show up for yourself each day with a five minute workout and you do it day after day, you change how you see yourself, your identity starts to change, you boost your own self-esteem, you become someone who can stick to the things that you said you were gonna do. You can keep your word to yourself. Mm -hmm. It builds momentum. Sure. It builds consistency. And I think certainly I'm biased by my experience as a doctor here from what I've seen in many people is that the five minutes over time becomes 10 minutes, Mm -hmm. becomes 15, becomes a regular twice a week at the gym as well. Mm Whereas I've often found that when we try and go all in at first, especially if we don't have the resources for a trainer or people to keep us accountable, I find that people can often fall off the wagon quite quickly.
0: Mm-hmm. And then do nothing.
1: And then do nothing. So, Lights, I always enjoy talking to you. <laughs> to finish off this conversation, then, we've covered so many different topics. <laughs> right? Through your email list and your social media, you set people off on all kinds of challenges. Mm-hmm if you were going to leave my audience with one simple challenge Hmm.
0: right now, Mm -hmm. what would it be? Tell yourself the truth about one thing in your life and take an action on, on that honesty. And it could be, you know, I'm having a very difficult time quitting sugar to use that example. So, What's one thing you can put in place that's going to help you to create the experience or the relationship with sugar that you ultimately want to create? And it could be, uh, you know, these these um, cakes or puddings or cookies or whatever. I can't stop eating them. Okay, so maybe you just you donate them, you get them out of your house, get them out of your pantry. Just agree to not purchase them anymore you can eat them when you're out of your house, but you don't eat them when you're at home. Yeah. Or you replace them with carrots or some other sweet type mm. of vegetable or fruit. Yeah. So some other version of that.
1: Yeah, I love it. Honesty and action. Mm-hmm. Like you're doing great work. I think it's a fantastic book.
0: That's coming on the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm glad we were able to do it in person. It's an honor. Me too, man. And looking forward to more conversations. Me too. <laughs>
1: really hope you enjoyed that conversation. Do think about one thing that you can take away and apply into your own life. And also have a think about one thing from this conversation that you can teach to somebody else. Remember, when you teach someone, it not only helps them, it also helps you learn and retain the information. Now, before you go, just wanted to let you know about Friday Five. It's my free weekly email containing five simple ideas to improve your health and happiness. In that email, I share exclusive insights that I do not share anywhere else, including health advice, how to manage your time better, interesting articles or videos that I've been consuming, and quotes that have caused me to stop and reflect. And I have to say, in a world of endless emails, it really is delightful that many of you tell me it is one of the only weekly emails that you actively look forward to receiving. So if that sounds like something you would like to receive each and every Friday, you can sign up for free at drchatterjee.com forward slash Friday5. Now, if you are new to my podcast, you may be interested to know that I have written five books that have been bestsellers all over the world, covering all kinds of different topics, happiness, food, stress, sleep, behavior change, and movement, weight loss, and so much more. So please do take a moment to check them out. They are all available as paperbacks, ebooks, and as audiobooks, which I am narrating. If you enjoyed today's episode, it is always appreciated if you can take a moment to share the podcast with your friends and family, or leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you so much for listening. Have a wonderful week. And please note that if you want to listen to this show without any adverts at all, that option is now available for a small monthly fee on Apple and on Android. All you have to do is click the link in the episode notes in your podcast app. And always remember, you are the architect of your own health. Making lifestyle change is always worth it because when you feel better, you live more.